everyone. Welcome to Risk Roundup. Progress in science and technology means that there are substantial opportunities for solving complex problems in humanity. But technology trends reshape geopolitics and trust is the foundation of leadership. So as China exhibits a much more assertive and confrontational geopolitical stance, the world today stands on the brink of the coming conflict with China. As a result, it is crucial to evaluate the causes and consequences of the emerging conflict, as it is not only the United States, but India and many other countries seem to be preparing for the coming conflict. To discuss the coming conflict with China further, I'm delighted to welcome Dr. Alfredo Toro Hardy to Risk Roundup. Dr. Hardy is a Venezuelan retired di diplomat, scholar, and author. He has a doctorate in international relations and several master and postgraduate degrees. Before resigning from the Venezuelan Foreign Service, he served as ambassador to the United States, the United Kingdom, Spain, Brazil, Singapore, Chile, and Ireland. He directed the diplomatic academy of his country, as well as other Venezuelan academic institutions, while being visiting professor at several universities abroad, including Princeton. He is a Fulbright Scholar and a two-time Rockefeller Foundation Bellagio Center resident scholar. He is also an author of 20 books and co-author of 15 more. He has also published 30 peer-reviewed papers, all of them on international affairs. Welcome, Professor Hardy. We are so very honored to have you on Risk Roundup. It's my pleasure and my honor. Thank you so much. Wonderful, Professor. So each nation currently stands on the verge of the most turbulent and transformative period in all of human history. As the emerging technologies merge and converge to make the once unachievable imagination possible, this will fundamentally change the global dynamics. So what relationship do you see between technology trends and the emerging China conflict? Thank you so much. Very interesting question. I would say that Xi Jinping aims at uh, China's resurrection, which translate into convergent strategies like uh, China dream of national rejuvenation or made in China 2025. The first causes a powerful and prosperous China, the expansion of the country's geopolitical footprint a focus on military power and uh, military technology, uh, and a change in China's geostrategy. Made in China 2025 on its part aims at transforming China into a world leader in science and technology into the world leader in science and technology and innovation for mid uh, 20, uh, 21st century. Hence, technology and geopolitics go hand in hand within this search of uh, China's uh, new role in world affairs. Um, uh, at the end of all this process, we find the year 2049, uh, the vision of 2049, which is the year in which uh, the People's Republic of China will reach its 100th anniversary. 
In the 2017 19th Party Congress, which is the most the most authoritative, uh, the most renowned document of the uh, Chinese Communist Party, it was articulated by the first time the ambition for the country to contend for global leadership. It stated that for 2049, China should, be, should have become a global leader in terms of, of, of national strength and international influence. But the fact is that by heralding the country's ambition and boasting about their capabilities, while at the same time hardening its geopolitical positions, China unavoidable challenged the United States primacy. This has generated a strong reaction from the US. America looks at this process as a direct challenge to its primacy, to its leadership, and as a result, we are now confronting an emerging Cold War. Yes, yes, so it seems. Now, since the most compelling geopolitical story today revolves around China and the Cold War, what are the conventional assumptions about the future of geopolitics that are being challenged by the emerging China conflict? Well, China has not only aggressively, is not only aggressively competing with the United States in technology, it is also competing economically, militarily, geopolitically, and also in terms of what could be called as conversion capacity, meaning the aptitude to rally other countries behind its lead. Thanks to Trump and to China's own global economic interconnectedness, interconnectivity, Beijing ranks better than Washington in terms of conversion capacity, as it does in most of the other capacities I just mentioned. However, there is an area that represents the Achilles heel of China in its ambition of transforming itself in the next hegemonic power, meaning in its ambition of uh, creating a Sinocentric hegemon. And that is the fact that uh, China's culture is far from, from being a, universe, a universal culture. China's interpretation of universalism has always been a stay-in-home universalism. Uh, the Chinese mind has always been preoccupied by, by developing, developing a Chinese civilization, not a universal civilization, not a global civilization. To the contrary, the United States inherited the hegemonic torch from uh, a country from which it also inherited the same language and civilization, the United Kingdom. As a result, for the last 200 years, the world has been living under a Anglocentric hegemony under Anglocentric contents. 
and that creates the whole difference. Since the day of the Greco-Roman civilization, we haven't seen anything similar to what we are witnessing today in this continuous uh, hegemonic presence of Anglo-Saxon contents and Anglo-Saxon values. But even then, Greeks and Romans did not share the same language, nor they shared the same common uh, values to the extent that, that Britain and the US share today. From Shakespeare to the Gettysburg Address, from McDonald's to Facebook, from Marvel Comics to Harry Potter, from Chaz to Rock, from Hollywood to Netflix, the symbols of universal interconnection are very much Anglocentric. Uh, as a result, even if China ends up prevailing economically, militarily, technologically, etc., it will never be able to uh, create a Sinocentric world due precisely to this situation. Of course, China has 500 Confucius Institute around the world trying to address the situation, but that's tantamount to a grain of, uh, of sand in amid a big uh, beach. So it's very difficult for China to overcome this, uh, this situation. Yes, yes. No, that's very interesting analysis. And I'm glad you shared that with our global viewers and listeners, because at the end of the day, freedom in thinking, freedom in our thoughts is very important. And when a country tries to, who is trying to lead, who is tr trying to create a global influence, if they cannot give that freedom to their own citizens, or how, how will the global community trust that country? And that it's a very, uh, interesting dynamics because they are trying to push their, you know, country's way of life on the global community. Now, every piece of geopolitical conflict that is happening in the world today perhaps revolves around technologies. But here we are witnessing that they are trying to not just focus on technology, but they are trying to focus on their values and their way of life. Now, understanding which nations are prepared to take advantage of emerging technologies helps, normally helps us understand what the geopolitical order will look like in the coming years. But so one question is, obviously, is China prepared to take the advantage of the disruptive forces of the technological tsunami that is coming their way? But the point that you made about their way of life, their, you know, uh, way of uh, trying to influence the global community to adopt their way of life. I think that will create complex challenges, wouldn't it? Yes. Uh, I would say that uh, to begin with, China's reemergence into the top of the world stage has been accompanied by three frames of mind. First, uh, a fixation with its own past. Uh, China cannot look into the future without the lenses of its glorious past. Hence, in that sense, moving forward implies moving backwards. Second, 
that is a grievance burden, a historical debt yet to be paid, also it's felt by, by, by the majority of the Chinese. China's humiliation still run high with its population and leadership, feeling a strong nationalist sentiment. Third, there is a revisionist approach towards the prevailing international order, and in particular to the regional status quo. This originates not only from its aversion towards the system model when China was weak, but also to the fact that it doesn't fit within China's whole, uh, own hierarchical version of the world. As a result, China's re-emergence is called to shape conventional assumption on geopolitics. Three setups, I would say, are particularly relevant in this sense. The first one will be China's aim at controlling the South China Sea. Second, China's aim at controlling the so-called first and second island chain. And third, China's aim at developing a blue water navy. Let's explain a bit uh, what this means. First, China reclaims 90% of the South China Sea and the energy supplies and fishery resources beneath it, appealing to rights which they claim went back to time immemorial. That is the case of the so-called Nine-Dash Line, which contravenes the United Nations Convention of the law of the sea and does not recognize the jurisdiction of the International Court of Justice. To give teeth to its position, China has undertaken a military build-up spree in the South China Sea through the construction of numerous island, uh, artificial island in the region. And uh, this island has been transformed into fortresses with uh, very modern missiles and uh, uh, modern radars and, 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 and uh, modern airplanes. Hence, this should be added to the fact that they have a very strong presence a Navy presence in the area. So they, as the first, they are aiming to control the, 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 the South of China. But second, China aims at well at controlling the first and second island chain setups, making them, if possible, out limits for the US Navy and US bases. The second island chain scenario is a much longer term, term aspiration, of course. These chains are the major archipelagos out from the East Asian uh, mainland, mainland coast. And um, that are very important for China to control. First, because Taiwan falls within this first island chain. 
but also because with the needs there are several choke points that could literally seal China in, hence for China to control this first island chain becomes fundamental. But of course, absolute security for a country means absolute insecurity for all the countries. And in this case, this applies to countries like Japan or the Philippines that will would be submitted to absolute insecurity due to, to uh, China's uh, proposition. Third, China is in the process of developing a blue water navy, meaning a navy able to operate in the oceans of the world uh, with global expeditionary capabilities that for the last a few decades have been a monopoly of the United States. Uh, as Xi Jinping expressed, uh, he wants to transform China into a maritime great power. This not only represents a major challenge to the United States, but also requires for China to acquire naval bases around the world. Uh, the US have around 34, China has to, to look for naval bases. This in turn is leading for China's so-called string, string of pearl strategy, which implies the construction by China of several port infrastructures in the Indian Ocean that could in the, term, in the future be turned into naval bases. Hence, this is placing China in a, in a collision course with India as well. I would say that those are the three most relevant geopolitical areas where the geopolitical scene can be shaken up. Yes, very, very interesting analysis. And I, uh, it's very interesting that in the beginning you said that they are trying to move forward while they're you know trying to go backwards so that's very interesting that you know they while they want to progress they also want to make sure that you know what they had as a country as a civilization that they can take it with them you know as they move forward so let's see you know if they are able to uh, manage what they are trying to do. But it is said that no other nation's government is racing towards a future with as much force as China. So do you see this signaling significant shifts in the balance of geopolitical power in the coming years? Definitely, definitely. Uh, uh, I would say, I would remember a phrase by former Australian Prime Minister Kevin Roth who said that uh, what we are witnesses in China today is the equivalent to the English Industrial Revolution and the Global Information Revolution uh, combusting simultaneously, but uh, compressed in a 30-year period and not, and not in a 300-year period. Li Kuan Yu, Singapore funded from the father used to say, on the other hand, that it's not uh, possible to pretend that G20 
China is just another big player in the international arena, as China, he said, was the biggest player in the history of the world. Hence, we are talking of a big game. Um, what uh, the implication of, uh, of this may be? Well, there are, there are uh, I would say that uh, China would, uh, the geopolitics of the world besides what I just mentioned before, could, uh, could uh, uh, shaken the status quo in several ways. The Middle Kingdom is back. And this entails that its restoration comes hand in hand with the impulse to revise both the regional status quo and the international order. It happens though that the United States, which has been the sole superpower for the last 30 years, serves as the main custodian, not only of this international order, but of the Asian status quo as well. Uh, moreover, having emerged victorious from its confrontation with the uh, Soviet Union, the United States feels validated in its own position, in its own interpretation of what the status quo and the international order should be. And, and of course, of its commanding role within it. What can, what can happen then as a result of this confrontation between the, the US and, and China, as a result of this emergent Cold War between these two giants? I would say that there are several scenarios that we could uh, fix our attention in. The first one would be an attempt by the United States to contain China in the same manner in which it contained the Soviet Union between 1947 and 1989. But of course, there are fundamental differences between the Soviet Union and China because China's contention would be taking place in an area which is existential existential for China, and it includes uh, Taiwan. Hence, uh, it's not the same as the confrontation we saw during the previous Cold War, in which the two big powers confronted themselves uh, through satellites and subsidiary areas. Now, in this case, the confrontation will be taking place in an area which is fundamental for one of those two players. Or China. Uh, the second option would be a power sharing agreement between the United States and China. Henry Kissinger and Paul Kennedy, among other authors, have been calling for this power sharing between the US and China. But this is not as easy. Would be China willing to accept a power sharing structure in its historical sphere of influence. On the other hand, would the United States will be willing to treat China as an equal? It's difficult. 
The third option would be war, a war between these two giants. The leading power, but uh, who would trigger the war? Who would initiate this war? Would it be the leading power before the emerging power becomes too powerful? And this holds under the classical uh, so-called two-seated strap situation. When an, when an established power feeling that an emerging one is, is becoming too powerful tends to go to war when it can still win that war. But conversely, it, it, it could fall. Um, the, 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 uh, it could be the unsatisfied emerging power who could initiate this war. And this was in the so-called power transition theory type of situation, meaning when an emerging power feels that it cannot advance further, it would tend to go to war to open itself the, the, the field. Um, there is another option. That would be a fourth option. That would be America's withdrawal, meaning a isolationist impulse by the United States, by the leading superpower. But would uh, the US be ready to chill ground and retreat itself behind its protected continental walls while it, it is still the commanding superpower? It is difficult. So there are several uh, geopolitical implications uh, deriving from China's rise, and all of them are enormous. Yes, so it seems there are many different uh, ways this could go forward, and uh, uh, there are many variables we have to consider, evaluate, that would be the drivers of what the uh, coming tomorrow would be, but you have worked for years in government foreign service and you recently published a book called China versus the US who will prevail. What questions are answered by this book and what would you like to uh, How would you like to summarize the book and how would it help the global, you know, community in understanding where we stand with the conflict that is ongoing with China? Let's say that the book aims to answer two sets of questions. The first set contains two questions, or, or the following ones. Did China challenge the United States too hard and too soon, and by doing so, seriously affected the chance to attain its objectives? The second question within this set being, can Washington still contain China? Can Washington still contain China's ascendancy and retain its current leadership, or is it too late? So, essentially, is it too early for one, or is it too early for the other? The second, uh, the second set of questions is the following. What are the options that can result from the clash of these two giants? And which of these options, which of these scenarios has the strongest possibility of prevailing? I would say that for a country as obsessed 
as China is in continuously measuring what it calls its comprehensive national power, it would seem to be out of context to have provoked America's reaction. They have felt unprepared for such measurement of forces. China's assertiveness can simply mean that according to its calculations, the country feels that it's now powerful enough to take that stand. Uh, how can we know? So, waging the national power of both China and the United States to balance power profile seems to be the best way to answer the first set of questions, meaning was it too early or is it already too late? Uh, in order to weigh the profile power of both countries, the book tries to ascertain how, how well the two of them rank in six different aptitude categories. These are the convergence aptitude, meaning their capability to rally all the countries behind their lead. The strategic aptitude, meaning the capability to maintain a sustained and rational course of action. Of action. The universality aptitude, of which we already spoke, uh, meaning the capability to project their own culture and values globally. The military aptitude, meaning the capability to deter aggression by the other party, and in case that hostilities ensue to win the military confrontation. The economic aptitude, meaning the capability to sustain a faster GDP growth within the competition. And finally, the technological aptitude, that is, the capability to obtain primacy in a group of key emerging technologies. Ascertaining how well China and the United States rank in these different capabilities allows us to understand how they rank in the comprehensive national power. And that gives us a good indication of their strengths and vulnerabilities. And by extension, allows us to have a clearer picture of potentialism in areas. Yes. Uh, and these lead us to the second question of questions. What are the options that can respond and which of those options has the strongest possibility? I don't know if you want me to stand a bit more. Yes. In this. Yes. Some of these options or some of these scenarios I, I just uh, mentioned a few minutes ago. Uh, one would be the containment of China by the United States, a power sharing agreement between, between the two of them, going to war, America's withdrawal, and it's another uh, a scenario which I, which I did not mention, which is the collapse of the Chinese Communist Party regime, meaning 
would the Chinese Communist Party regime be able to manage so many challenges and variables while riding uh, on, the, on the tiger of Chinese nationalism? So this is an option as well. Any of those options can, can, can result. And of course, uh, I try to measure them to see which one results more plausible. But of course, I would not reveal that part because that's like revealing the end of a Agatha Christie book. Yes, yes, no, those are very good points that you made. And it's so interesting that the United States paved the way for China's economic development some 40 years ago, I believe. And uh, because the United States, you know, helped recognize that communist regime, that, that is, you know, China, as the legitimate government, that they were going through very turbulent times that time. And because of the United States' help, they were able to legitimize their government and they were able to build on that and have these decades of you know progress that they were able to uh, make because of the help because of those that important milestone of the united states support that brought china to where it is today but all these years i mean decades of this synergy is in the brink of collapse so it uh, it is very interesting that uh, in spite of the united states Paving the way, we are watching something that could have become a beautiful synergy, you know, on the brink of collapse. And that raises a lot of questions, doesn't it? Well, it all began in 1973 when President Nixon went to, to China and met with Mao Zedong and the two of them and, and, and the two countries reached a historical agreement. It was a historical but simple agreement according to which the US would recognize the Communist Party as the legitimate uh, regime of China, would hence recognize Beijing as the capital of China. And conversely, China would recognize, Beijing would recognize America's leadership in Asia. Uh, it was a long-standing agreement that allowed both parties to overcome many difficult challenges amid all of the Tiananmen uh, crisis, the Tiananmen massacre. Uh, moreover, it was an agreement that was respected by four successive generations of Chinese leaders and was respected as well by uh, in American administration, both Democrats and Republicans. Thanks to this agreement, China was able to concentrate itself in its own economic development within, without having to worry about uh, American hostilities, American, uh, America being a hostile power. Uh, moreover, as you well mentioned, the U.S. became instrumental in helping China in, its own, in attaining its development. Meanwhile, America could turn its attention into other parts of the world. 
basically into the Middle East without having to worry that China would challenge its leadership in Asia. On top of it, both economy became, as you were mentioning as well before, so complementary that the term Chimerica was coined to describe the synergy resulting from this relationship. After 2008, though, everything be began to unravel, to unravel as China began exhibiting a much more assertive and confrontational foreign policy. Xi Jinping arrival to power in 2012 and 2013 not only accelerated this trend, but uh, presented a direct challenge to America's leadership. A challenge not limited to East Asia, but to assume more global characteristics. How to understand then what happened in 2008 that changed everything? I would say that uh, the answer can be found in a concept which is island, alien to, to Western thought, but uh, which is very important in, Chinese, in China's strategic thing. This is the so-called Xi. The Xi can be represented, can be understood as momentum, can be understood as changing of uh, a rapid changing of the configuration of factors can be understood as opportunity. And what made the Chinese believe that something had so fundamentally changed in 2008? Well, I think indeed that uh, it was clear that many things happened in 2008. On the one hand, we witnessed the largest uh, global economic crisis since 1929, resultant from American financial excesses. Uh, we witnessed as well the fact that by having become the largest creditor to the US, China had also become a hostage to America's financial hubris and, and foolishness. We witnessed as well the sweeping efficiency with which China was able to overcome the risk of contagion. We witnessed as well the fact that China's economic growth became the fundamental factor in preserving the world from a, from a major economic downturn. In addition to that, 2008 was the year in which uh, China's uh, sense of pride received a boost as a result of the successful Olympics, Olymp uh, Olympic Games of, of, of that year. And of course, all of the above was compounded by the frailty shown by the United States, military frailty shown by the United States, both in Afghanistan and Iraq. As a result, the Ch in Chinese eyes, they saw themselves, they suddenly themselves much stronger than they had previously assumed. While the United States 
was proving to be considerably weak, weaker than, uh, than Prisium. And the rest is history. But Everything changed in 2008. So, so it seems from what you are telling me, but I'm thinking about it from a neutral perspective that on, even if let's say the financial collapse led, you know, to this decision, you know, from China that uh, everything is changing, you know, we cannot uh, continue on this path. But United States, if you look at it, it's the most transparent society. We have so many checks and balances in the country. Compared to that, we do not know much about China. There is so much, you know, secrecy in how the governance and everything, you know, uh, operates in that country. Now, financial collapse, yes, even if it happened for whatever reasons, the ability to overcome that, to reverse that and to get back up does not take much time. Whereas the challenge is in China, if we see because of their one child policy, uh, there, the country is burdened with so many demographic challenges. You know, they, it's not only the aging, you know, of their, uh, you know, community, but uh, the, the imbalances between the boys and girls and between the two different uh, sexes and, you know, how the government forced their citizen to have only one child, that has created enormous challenges that would take probably generations to overcome that. So we cannot compare, you know, the financial collapse and, you know, the demographic collapse that they are facing in China as both the, you know, variables that would be, that would be of an equal intensity. So there are many, from my assessment, there are many, many complex challenges that China is facing. What United States is facing can be easily reversed, but the complex challenges that China is facing would take generations to overcome. Do you think that this is not a challenge for Chinese ambitions? Well, to begin with, I would say that the problems that the United States is confronting are very difficult to solve. The United States had always had vertical, numerous vertical fractures. You always have two different positions in whatever subject you wanted to, to, to talk about. But those were vertical fractures. What has changed is that those vertical fractures, those numerous vertical fractures, have been transformed into a huge horizontal fracture in which two sides of society see themselves as complete opposites. You have a huge polarization in the United States and the system itself was never designed to manage this kind of uh, horizontal fracture. The founding fathers of the United States always wanted to preserve the minorities from the impulse of the majority, from the majority. Now what we have are two huge majorities confronting themselves. And as a result, the system is becoming paralyzed. By going into China, with a rapidly aging population, as you mentioned, 
as a result of low fertility rate of the policies uh, undertaken until relatively recent, uh, recently by the Chinese government, a rising life expectancy technology is becoming a providential answer to the country's quest to attain its rejuvenation. Rejuvenation is a nationalistic catchword that glues together the Chinese Communist Party and the Chinese society within the aim of making China great again. Technology and rejuvenation thus become inseparable notions. As a result, nationalism is lending its support to technology and it's shielding the CCP, the, the, uh, the Communist Party, from the, from the difficult social effects that, uh, of human displacement that are normally associated with technology. Technological human displacement, though, is not privative of China. It happens everywhere and it will be one of the big problems that the world will face in the, 12, in, the, in the 21st century. For the US, I would say the situation is even more difficult than for China. Why? Because the United States has a much larger percentage of generational relay, of population relay in China. And hence, it's not so easy to justify technology when you have a generational relay. But on the other hand, the United States has, doesn't have the kind of uh, unifying banners that nationalism is providing to China at this point in time. Hence, managing the technology, the disruptions, the social disruptions that uh, technology will bring will probably be much harder in the United States than in China itself. I see your point there. I, I do see your point there. Uh, th that is a complex challenge. I do agree to that. Now, strategic security is ensuring that the future of humanity is secure from intentional as well as unintentional security events and incidents. And that requires understanding any security risks that are emerging today that will impact the coming tomorrow. So irrespective of who wins the forthcoming US presidential election, would anything change for the coming China conflict? I'm afraid that uh, change in the White House may not change much in the emerging Cold War between China and the US. The confrontation between these two countries has become structural and not simply conjunctural. Uh, Xi Jinping versus what uh, in China is called Feng Fai Zhu Wei. I'm sorry, my pronunciation. Feng Fai Zhu Wei means the attainment of great aims. This translates into a position of greater leadership in world affairs and a redefinition of China's footprint in Asia. For the United States, 
This represents, of course, an acceptable challenge to its leadership. As a result, a widespread consensus has emerged in the United States that pictures China in antagonistic terms. Uh, as a result, in the same manner in which a, an expansion, an expansive Chinese nationalist supports Xi Jinping and an expansive uh, popular sentiment sustain this sentiment of adversion towards China in the United States at this point in time. Trump's departure from the White House will only remove the reality show content of America's foreign policy towards China. But uh, the essential of the problem, the essentials of the problem will remain very much there. Uh, there is a very powerful, uh, very powerful sentiment prevails on both, on both sides, and that will remain there. Yes, yes, I do see the concerns, and uh, I also see the you know reality of the situation that uh, it is what it is, and that conflict is going to go on irrespective of who is in the White House. And that is a complex challenge for the future of the humanity because what happens, uh, who leads the world and uh, how the world is being led and you know, what is the future? All that will impact the future of the humanity. So when the complex crises and challenges are going to emerge, the way it is going to emerge because of the US-China conflict, concerns about the how to protect the future of the, <clears throat> sorry about that, concerns about how to protect the future of the humanity remains. So how would you summarize the future? Uh, I would do it in very just, in very uh, few words. Uh, may you live in interesting times is an English expression that supposedly translate a Chinese course. Definitely. The years to come are going to be anything but boring and uninteresting. But I'm sure all of us would have preferred to live in much more boring times than the one we are going to witness. Yes. <clears throat> Sorry about that. You know, I'm, I think I'm getting down with something. But so, what would you like to tell our global viewers and listeners, especially about all your books that you have been writing and publishing, and all the great work that you have been doing uh, with all the initiatives that you are involved with? What would you like to share? Well, essentially, for many years, I've been a, a, an active diplomat. I resigned a few years ago, but um, until my resignation, I was a career diplomat, and simultaneously, I tried to be an active scholar and an active writer. And I think that uh, this double perspective served me well, because uh, the theoretical knowledge that I acquired as, an, as a scholar and, and, and writer allowed me to strategize better in the field of diplomacy. While conversely, my 
my capacity to work with realities translated into my into my work to into my my intellectual work into my scholarly uh, activities hence i was always in touch with realities as a scholar in the same way in which i was guided by by by, by knowledge and by by um, theoretical knowledge in my in my work as a diplomat wonderful wonderful no so that uh, that is amazing the, all the work that you are doing all the thought leadership and your scholarship that you are sharing with the global community i'm sure that is going to benefit the world tremendously so thank you so much dr alfredo for participating in this round of today we appreciate your thoughtful insight into the geopolitical consequences of the U.S.-China conflict and our global viewers and listeners will benefit tremendously from what you had to say today. And as a result, this risk round of dialogue has been of service. We thank you for that. Thank you. Very honored and very pleased. Wonderful that you're most welcome and you, it was uh, our honor that you were able to uh, spend some time with us. So Risk Group is a strategic security risk research platform and community. And through the Risk Roundup initiative, Risk Group and I are on a mission to talk with a billion people, innovators, scientists, entrepreneurs, futurists, technologists, policymakers, to scholars and decision makers. The reason behind this effort through the Risk Roundup initiative is to research, review, rate, and report strategic security risk facing humanity. This collective intelligence effort is essential to understand where we need to focus on our collective security and what destructive forces we need to be mindful about. Thank you for being part of the conversation. Until next time, I'm Jayshree, host of Risk Roundup, signing off. See you next time.